I'm back, everyone. Did you miss me? The Nasty Pasty has returned for a new episode after I, Andrew Roberts, have been on a Greek island, soaking up the sunshine and eating and drinking my own weight in halloumi and draft beer. But it's time to get back to the grind, however, so I'm back with a new entry that retreads some already familiar ground. Now, if you're listening to this, of course, you probably haven't forgotten what it is that we do here. We look at films from between 1960 and 1990, the same period of time from whence the legendary video nasties were forged. We try to get inside the mind of a deluded figurehead, the DPP Sir Thomas Hetherington, who officially came up with the list of forbidden articles. We'll try to see the obscenity in a whole bunch of similar films and ponder long and hard about why these films did not get their day in court, when some of them are just as nasty, some of them if not more. So today's episode is covering the remaining Animals trilogy of giallo films from Maestro Dario Argento. On episode 9, we covered both Blood and Black Lace as well as the first instalment of the Animals triad, which was The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. Now Argento followed this up with two others, and they're the films that we're looking at today. Cat and Nine Tales, and Four Flies on Grey Velvet. While the three films together are commonly referred to as a trilogy, they don't actually follow the same continuity, and so they're not sequels as such. The only things that they share are a reference to animals in their titles, uh, the giallo genre in general, and all have scores composed by Ennio Morricone. While in contemporary reviews, the trilogies have been lauded for revitalising the giallo genre and making it a reliable commercial gambit, the films had varying successes when they were both initially released. I mean, Bird with the Crystal Plumage was almost universally successful in both the States and across Europe, earning Argento a reputation similar to Alfred Hitchcock. Cat and Nine Tales, however, was pretty much dismissed in America, but it went on to have much more success in Europe. And Four Flies on Grey Velvet was pretty much only successful in its native Italy, as besides a French VHS release, the film was not really distributed as well throughout Europe and the States until the late 2000s. But that's enough of that. Let's get into the juicy details and kick off proceedings with the first film in today's trove, Cat and Nine Tales.
blind man called Arno, along with his granddaughter Laurie, are passing a car whilst on the way home, when he hears mention of blackmail between two men. Later that night, a mysterious person breaks into a highly renowned medical building nearby, the Terzi Institute, but apparently steals nothing. Reporter Carlo Giordani arrives the next day with the police and meets Arno outside when he bumps into him. Inside the Institute, a doctor called Calabresi speaks to the mysterious man over the phone and agrees to meet with them, speaking to his fiancée Bianca that he knows who broke into the Institute. At the train station, Calabresi meets with the unseen man, who suddenly pushes him onto the tracks, causing him to be mowed down by an incoming train. Arno is told by Laurie of the man's death, who recognises him as one of the men from the car, and explains that Giordani wrote the article. Arno then visits Giordani and asks that he verify whether the photograph in the paper was cropped in any way. Rigetto, the photographer, discovers that the original shows the killer's hand pushing Calabresi. But just as he's about to print it, the killer enters the development room and strangles him with a cord, stealing all the negatives of the photo. Giordani and Arno survey the Institute and go through all the list of suspects. The company's main assistants, Mombelli, Esson, Cassoni and Braun, as well as Fulvio Terzi and his daughter Anna. Giordani speaks with Fulvio and then with Anna, who wishes to know what they've been talking about. After some brief questions, the pair leave together whilst Arno and Laurie meet with Bianca. Anna and Giordani notice they're being followed by the police and they drive at high speed in order to evade them. At a bar, Anna reveals that the doctors are working on two separate projects, one of which is a wonder drug, and the other is a genetics project about a chromosome combination known as XYY, which apparently indicates a criminal tendency in a person. Worried after Arno's visit, Bianca locates Calabresi's car and finds a note inside with details of the train station meeting. Putting it inside her locket, Bianca does not realise that the killer has been spying on her, Telephoning Arno to inform her of what she's discovered, she's then strangled to death in her apartment with a cord. Going to the Institute again, Giordani discovers that everyone in the Institute was given the test for the XYY combination, but the results are kept under lock and key. Anna visits Giordani and seduces him into bed, and after they finish, they attempt to drink some fresh milk. But after an alarming call from Arno about nearly being gassed, Giordani realises the killer has poisoned his milk and slaps it from Anna's hands. He then infiltrates the Institute with a lock-picking colleague and discovers that Anna is actually adopted and that Terzi has had some unnatural inclinations towards her. Police Inspector Spimmy also informs Giordani that Bianca was collaborating with Braun to sell the wonder drug and that Braun has been missing ever since she died with his lover Manuel. On a tip from Manuel's ex-boyfriend, Giordani locates where Braun is hiding only to discover an upset Manuel, along with Braun's corpse. Arno remembers Bianca's locket and goes with Giordani to the cemetery to obtain it from the family mausoleum. On the way out, Arno is seemingly attacked and Giordani is locked in the crypt. When Arno enters, his glasses are missing and his cane is covered in blood. He says that Laurie has been kidnapped by the killer and that he demanded the note for her life. He did so, but managed to stab the man in the process. Going to visit the Terzis again with the police, Giordani notices that Anna's hand is hurt, and he accuses her of being the killer. When it turns out to just be an accident with a vase, they instead search the Terzi Institute, where it's shown that the killer is hiding out with Laurie. The police fail to notice anything, but Giordani searches further and encounters the killer on the roof, who turns out to be Cazzoni. 
After a struggle, Giordani manages to stop him from killing Laurie, and soon the police discover the furore. Cassoni attempts escape, only to encounter Arno, who holds him at knife point. Cassoni explains that he had to kill Calabresi, as he knew that Cassoni had the XYY combination, and that he would have been ruined if news got out. He broke into the Institute, therefore, and replaced his file with a normal one, but Calabresi began to blackmail him when he noticed. After telling Arno that Laurie is dead, they struggle and Cassoni falls down an elevator shaft, severely burning his hands on the tensile cable and then being pulverised at the bottom, just as Laurie's voice is heard calling joyously for Arno, very much alive. Hello, gorgeous. Want me to read you the paper? No, not now, later. Can I try it? Go ahead. Be my guest. C-L... Cloud? No, 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 no. Here's C-L... Ear... Clear... Huh? H... He's dead. R... Who? Who's that? The man you told me to look at the other night. You know, the one in the car. Yes. The paper says so. Scientist crushed by train. Dr. Calabresi, research analyst for the Tertzi Institute, was killed in a tragic accident at the railroad station. There's a picture of him. Describe the picture. It shows the man... And he's falling. And there's a train. Who wrote the article? Carlo Giordani. Released in 1971, Cat Nine Tales is another giallo picture from Dario Argento, with the same elements of flair and style that made Bird with the Crystal Plumage so popular. Now, due to this popularity and major success worldwide, Argento was asked by producers to make another similar title to cash in on the lucrative wormhole that he'd just torn open. At the time, Argento was working with writer Dardano Sacchetti on a road drama film called Montessa, but this project was shelved temporarily in favour of a new Jello film, although ultimately Montessa was never filmed. Argento wanted to do something in the vein of the 1968 thriller picture Twisted Nerve, about a man who's inspired by his special needs brother to act mentally challenged in order to pursue a girl. This does end badly, of course, when his inherent psychosis bleeds into his alternative personality, and bloodshed ensues. Liking the connection between homicidal madness and a genetic condition, he had Dardano use those themes in his initial treatment. Sacchetti himself had read about the XYY combination in an American medical magazine, and he decided to blend the two themes together, resulting in an initial seven-page draft concerning a scientist who's compelled to kill after discovering that he has the XYY combination. The idea was liked by all parties, and the production therefore started in September of 1970. The film's title, Il Gatto e Nova Corde, or Cat and Nine Tales, has very little bearing on the actual plot and is merely referenced at one point as a metaphor for the amount of leads that Arno and Giordani have to follow. Argento explains that the name was chosen to exploit a potential slogan that read Nine Times the Terror, 
They also insisted on crediting Brian Edgar Wallace to give the film an appeal to German audiences who would perk up at the hint that it was a crimmy film. The film was mostly shot in Turin and Cinecitta Studios in Rome, with some sequences filmed in Berlin. Along with the Hitchcock elements like the killer poisoning milk and close-ups of the killer's eyes, there's also some influence from the classic mystery novel The Big Sleep by Raymond Chandler. Early in the book, protagonist Philip Marlowe meets with the daughter of General Sternwood, Vivian. She's flirtatious but beautiful, and Marlowe is suspicious of her manner of asking questions about his involvement with her father, causing Marlowe to brand her as trouble. Now, in Cat and Nine Tales, the first meeting between Anna and Giordani plays out almost verbatim how Marlowe and Vivian make each other's acquaintance, with Anna clearly being proffered as a similar suspicious red herring. There's even similarities to Braun's character with the character of Geiger from Chandler's novel. Not only is Geiger also involved in blackmail, but has a male lover who has a confrontation with main character Marlowe when it's discovered that Geiger has been killed. Almost exactly the same as Giordani fighting with a frightened Manuel when Braun is found to be stabbed to death. In addition to these homages to the genre, Argento, in tandem with cinematographer Erico Mencher, utilises the killer's point-of-view technique a lot more in this example to better effect, such as during the dark stalkings of the Tersi Institute, or the journey with Laurie from the taxi. The film's script, too, is riddled with red herrings. Almost every character except for Giordani and Arno have a major secret that's uncovered through the film's runtime most of which are actually irrelevant to the mystery's solution. While it can make the film a little bit hard to keep track of, it does have the added effect of keeping the film's killer firmly in the shadows. And indeed, quite rarely for a giallo, the initial crime is actually a break-in rather than a murder, and the investigation has already pretty much started before the first murder is committed, which lends the film a real feeling of escalation on behalf of the killer. The film's death scenes, though, with the exception of the first and the last, are very mild in execution, even compared to The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, which at least had a sinister element of sexual sadism. The majority of the film's violence are strangulations perpetrated with a cord, and they're quite cold and methodical. Even Braun, who's stabbed, is done so off-screen, removing any of that visceral enjoyment that you'd want, really. The murder of Calabresi, however, is quite enjoyably horrible, with a slow-motion pounding of his face, stop it, by the front of the train bumper, leading to quite a frenzied sequence of his corpse tumbling onto the rails. The denouement as well is more visually exciting, with crashing through glass and a squirm-inducing friction burn on the killer's hands as he plummets to his death. While it's not likely to satisfy any gore hounds any time soon, the quite clinical feeling to the deaths is actually quite in line with the film's killer and the style of the crimes. The action, of course, centres around a high-tech laboratory, and the killer, Cassoni, is a doctor himself. Upon discovering that he has the XYY combination, and is therefore more likely to engage in criminal behaviour, Calabresi begins to blackmail him, and therefore Cassoni assassinates him to look like an accident. It's cold and calculated, but it's only meant to get rid of the man. There's no real perverse enjoyment or some sadistic pleasure being wrought. Similarly, he dispatches of the reporter and Bianca with a cord, quite methodically in order to retrieve some incriminating evidence. The exception here is his mutilation of Regetto's face with a razor after he's dead, but this is seemingly perpetrated to throw off the idea of a serial killer, as it is completely out of touch with his previous modus operandi. 
Everything he does is calculated, but it's, bet- but it's detached from the murders, from any visceral enjoyment. The only time he gets personal is with Laurie, whom he threatens to cut her throat, seemingly not because only is Arno clever enough to deduce who he is, but Arno has also injured him and his desperation has now peaked. It is notable, however, that although he does not kill Laurie, and merely hints that he has, he does it with a rather sadistic expression. It's almost as though he's been methodical and detached about his crimes up until this point, and when his hand is forced, so by the end of the film he's come full circle and almost embraced a previously hidden enjoyment of inflicting pain. The fact that probably nothing would have happened if he hadn't have broken into the Terzi Institute and he just went to the police about some blackmail, it's rather contrary to what the film essentially says. He has the XYY gene, and his actions are kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy, almost as if he's already sealed by his genetic fate. Reporter Carlo Giordani was played by American Golden Globe winner James Franciscus, who'd been suggested to Argento by the film's American co-producers at National General Pictures, mostly because of Franciscus's popularity in the wake of Beneath the Planet of the Apes. He'd also appear in various TV movies, and he'd reappear in Antonio Margariti's Killer Fish, and also Enzo Castellari's The Last Shark. Arno was played by Academy Award winner Carl Malden, who'd won it for Best Supporting Actor in A Streetcar Named Desire. But he also appeared in Beyond the Poseidon Adventure, and also the 1985 version of Alice in Wonderland. It was Malden's first role in playing a blind person, and he was initially worried about how realistic he would be until some passers-by who were observing the filmmaking actually believed that he was blind. Catherine Spark was cast as Anna Terzi, and she was a French actress who'd appeared later in A Story of a Cloistered Nun, and she also was in a whole host of Italian TV movies. Pier Paolo Caponi, who played Inspector Spimmy, he also appeared in Seven Bloodstained Orchids and The Nun and the Devil, whilst Horst Frank, who played Braun, had appeared in 1969's Justine and Juliet by Jess Franco. Rada Razumov, who played Bianca, she'd also been in The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, but she's also the sister of the more frequently appearing Italian actor Ivan Razumov. Carlo Alighiero, who played Calabresi, he'd already been in Martino's Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward, and he'd go on to have some other roles in Giallo and Poliziotteschi movies, like Torso, uh, the Violent Professionals, and also The Tough Ones. While Fulvio Mingozzi, who we've mentioned before on Bird with the Crystal Plumage, played one of Spimmy's acquaintances. Umberto Rahau also returns from Bird with the Crystal Plumage to play Manuel's ex-lover. Now, Manuel himself was played by video nasty veteran Werner Pockerth, who we've seen before in Terror Express. And there's also Little Laurie, who is played by actress Cinzia de Carolis who people might recognise as the neighbour in Cannibal Apocalypse from Antonio Margariti. Finally, Terzi himself was played by Tino Carraro, who'd later reappear in Reno di Silvestri's Werewolf Woman, which was one of the Section 3 video nasties. Now, the director, of course, is Dario Argento, who most European horror fans will be aware of. Not only have we covered him previously, but the trailer of a remake of his most famous Suspiria has just hit the internet this week, so almost everyone has really heard of him, ultimately. As mentioned before, Argento co-wrote the film with Dardano Sacchetti, who we've also covered quite often. The film was produced by Salvatore Argento, who was Dario's father, and a frequent producer of his son's work, who we've again mentioned before. 
Other recurring faces are Onio Morricone, who did the music, and editor Franco Fraticelli. Even the assistant director returned from Bird with the Crystal Plumage, one Roberto Parianti. The only person that's new to the ci- is the cinematographer Erico Mencha, a Croatian chap who'd done a lot of Italian sex comedies before collaborating with Argento on this film. He also then subsequently worked with Lucio Fulci on his movie White Fang. Now, as mentioned previously, Cat and Nine Tales had little success in the USA, mostly gaining its popularity across Europe. Now, some of the promotions for the film sounded completely bonkers, like having nine different girls circulating a unique flyer throughout a town to represent the cat's nine tails. And all those who collected all the different flyers won an invite to a special midnight screening. There was even a suggestion to collaborate with the local milk companies to emulate the tense sequence involving the poisoned milk. The film did have cinematic exhibition in the UK in 1971, notably uncut and passed at AA. It missed the nasty scare, however, only getting its first VHS release in 1987, where it was passed without cuts but at Certificate 18. It has since been downgraded to a 15 in recent years, and it has multiple editions on Blu-ray and DVD from the ever-reliable Arrow Video. There's nothing really to censor in this film as it's so mild, but the film nonetheless has various versions over Europe, with some extra footage reportedly shot to pad out any future televised releases. So that was Cat and Nine Tales. Now I'll waste no time and get into our other Jallo this week, and the last of the Animals trilogy, Four Flies on Grey Velvet.
Drummer Roberto begins to notice that a strange figure seems to be watching him from afar. When he follows the man to a strange theatre, the man pulls a knife out on Roberto, and during a brief struggle, the man ends up stabbed and dead behind the stage, whilst a masked photographer openly takes a picture of the scene from a higher balcony. Quite depressed about the situation, he soon finds that both photographs of the murder and the dead man's passport, who's called Morosi, are being sent to him in a seemingly torturous fashion, as well as suffering recurring nightmares about a decapitation in public. One night, he's attacked in his apartment by the masked figure, who warns him that he will not be killed just yet, and that the police will not help him. He's forced to tell his wife Nina about the accidental killing and the subsequent tortures, which is overheard by his maid Amelia. The next day, Roberto goes to see his friends Godfrey and the Professor for advice, who suggests that the Professor should just keep an eye on him. After Roberto accidentally attacks his mailman, it's shown that Amelia is phoning the tormentor, attempting to blackmail them, as she has seen them planting the evidence. She goes to meet them in a park, only for the tormentor to not show up and as night falls and Amelia is about to leave, they turn up and kill her with a razor. Nina's cousin Dahlia turns up to stay with the couple, just before Nina receives a phone call from the police, informing her of Amelia's death. In a restaurant, Roberto's victim Morosi is revealed to be alive, and he phones the killer to meet with him, revealing that the knife was in fact a practical gag. When Morosi indicates that he wants out of the scam, The killer beats him with an ornament before strangling him to death with barbed wire. The professor informs Roberto that a figure stole his cat from his home the night before, prompting him to go to a private investigator called Orosio for help. After speaking with the police, Nina says that she doesn't want to stay in the house anymore and leaves Roberto alone with Dahlia. The pair flirt with each other in the bath and end up making love just before Orosio arrives to gather more evidence. When retrieving it for them, Roberto then discovers his cat's severed head. Orosio studies Nina's and Roberto's family photographs, and mentions that someone from both families strikes a massive resemblance, as well as references to a Villa Rapidi. Orosio pursues this lead, and it turns out to be a mental institution, which tells Orosio of a patient admitted by their father with a form of homicidal paranoia. When their father, who was not their actual biological father, died, the patient was seemingly cured. Tracking this patient down, Orosio catches a train and follows them into a bathroom, only to be suddenly killed with a lethal injection from a syringe, the killer spouting, you guessed right. Godfrey and the professor suggest that Roberto reunite with his wife outside of town, as the situation has become far too dangerous. Dahlia has flashbacks of an abusive man's words and tries to call Roberto to tell him something, only to be stalked by the killer in the house, forcing her to hide in a wardrobe. She's ultimately savaged to death with a knife by the killer, which upsets both Nina and Roberto. A doctor wishes to use her retina in an experiment to see the last image that Dahlia saw. The experiment is a success, and the last image she saw appears to be four flies on a grey background. Now fully convinced that he's next, Roberto obtains a gun and decides to wait for the killer to get for him. Nina, however, arrives while Roberto is at his most paranoid, and he hurriedly tries to shove her away, only to suddenly notice her pendant as it swings. The pendant, made of hardened resin, contains a single fly, which looks like four as it moves. Suddenly realising that Nina is in fact the killer, he slaps her only for her to turn his gun on him and shooting him in the shoulder. 
She explains that she suffered physical abuse as a child from her stepfather, who raised her as a boy because he disliked the idea of a daughter, and had her institutionalised because she didn't fight back like a boy. Roberto resembles him so strongly that she subconsciously wanted to make her father suffer after he died, and chose Roberto for his similarity. Godfrey suddenly intervenes and saves Roberto whilst Nina tries to flee, and in her hurry she crashes into a truck and is decapitated, fulfilling Roberto's nightmarish premonition. Oh, can I help you? No. Yes, I made a mistake. I was looking for a Rocio, private investigator. Oh, no, no, wait. That's me, private investigator. Oh. You see... Well, look, never mind. Oh, no, don't go. I'm waiting. Well, it's a bit risky, and, and, and I don't... Oh, yeah. And you're thinking this fairy is going to jump on a chair and scream bloody murder if he sees a mouse. Huh? Right? Yes, that's what I thought. Oh, you heterosexuals. I don't suppose you've ever had a homosexual experience? Let's forget it, man. Yes, we are men too, you know. Just a little different. That's very comforting. Mm -hmm. Oh. Mm. Who's paying? Do you? Huh? What's he had? Steak. Three sandwiches, two eggs, and a bottle of beer. Guess he wasn't hungry. Thank you. I'm not sure I believe you. Your story's awfully shallow. Can't think of a better one. No, this case is a real challenge. Fortunately, the odds are in our favor. The odds? Exactly. You see before you a fully-fledged, highly qualified private investigator with an extensive knowledge of modern science at his very fingertips. And in spite of this, in three years of honest practice, I haven't solved a single case. Not even one? Not even one. Interesting, isn't it? I suppose so, but it might mean that you... It means that, statistically speaking, one of the most impressive records of failure is destined to be broken. Eighty-four failures. A fantastic record. Incredible. A record like that couldn't possibly last. I could just sit in my office and wait for the criminal to show up. Please don't do that. Oh, no. I'll take a very personal interest in your kid. This is one of those Argento films that I hadn't actually seen yet, of which there are still a few, for example, like Opera and Mother of Tears. But I've had the Shameless DVD for a number of years in my collection, one positive thing about running a podcast is that you're in essence forced to watch something that you've wanted to watch for ages, and you just haven't mustered the effort to put it on yet. But anyhow, that's enough about me. Four Flies on Grey Velvet, or the original Italian Four Moshi de Velluto Grigio, released later in 1971, after Argento had already released Cat o Nine Tales. 
It was Argento's first collaboration with Italian director Luigi Cozzi, who was a huge cinema fan and a journalist on many magazines at the time, who'd interviewed Argento previously over Bird with the Crystal Plumage and become firm friends with him. So Argento asked Cozzi if he'd like to collaborate with him on his next film, of which Argento already had the title in mind, and Cozzi, of course, accepted. Together, they began to go through a wealth of source material, such as Raymond Chandler books, who we mentioned before, Robert Sheckley novels, and books from Frederick Brown, to get ideas for the film's script. For example, the opening where Roberto is harassed by a mosquito while rehearsing, and then patiently waits for it before killing it, is lifted from Chandler's The Little Sister, where protagonist Marlowe is harassed by a fly by about six pages, before suddenly lashing out and then killing it. The character of Erosio was based on a character from a Robert Sheckley novel, who humorously gets everything wrong, which inspired Erosio's rousing speech about having failed all of his cases. The character of God was also lifted from Frederick Brown's The Screaming Mimi, the same book that inspired Argento's first film, The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. And the death scenes in the script were written first, so that exclusive attention could be given to them, with the story being secondary and retrofitted to it later. The fantastic elements, like the machine that reads the last image on your retina, the killer who wears a smiling mask, and the camera, and even the exhibition for funerary apparatus, they're all due to Cotzi's influence, who had quite a taste for science fiction. Other elements that made it into the script harken back to Dario Argento's origins, working as an assistant to Sergio Leone on Once Upon a Time in the West. So, for example, the protagonist of Leone's film carries pistols in a red velvet case, and so too does the killer in this, extracting a syringe from a delicate red velvet casing. Even the film's ending, where Roberto barricades himself away with a gun, is very similar to a showdown in the Old West, waiting for the final duel between nemeses. These fantastical elements, along with the fact that the film was backed by American producers, ensuring a better distribution, made this quite an important work for Argento, being a precursor of elements that would later reappear in his more theatrical supernatural works, like Deep Red or Suspiria, and even Inferno to an extent. The appearance of the killer was also contributed by Cotzi, who'd heard a title bandied around called The Deadly Smile, now, reserving this, he suggested that the killer be identified by a smile, which Argento quite liked, and they initially shot close-ups of Mimsy Farmer's mouth in a twisted smile, but it was just far too obvious that the killer was female, so the idea was dropped, and instead, the creepy mask was used to a rather great effect. The shoot in general, which was mostly in Turin, but with some locations in Milan, was ultimately rather successful overall. One of the only places that they had to shoot in Milan was the train section, with Rosio following the killer, since Milan was at the time the only city to have a major train system. The crew were able to use extra carriages provided by the train company, and they were latched onto the end of a normal service. So quite humorously, the passengers were understandably confused when the two rear carriages wouldn't actually open to let them on when stopped at the platform. And they were even more befuddled when they found that the carriages were full of people, but also loads of lighting equipment. The toilets that the killer hides in, however, were not part of the train station, but they were actually a sound stage that was constructed in Rome. And in spite of the production's smoothness, some things did just not go quite as planned. The film's ending, including the bullets striking Roberto's shoulder and the rather operatic death of Nina, inspired by the grandiose scenes of Antonioni's Zabriskie Point, 
They were filmed using special cameras that had extremely high framing capability. The one that was used to film the car crash was borrowed from a university, and it required quite a large amount of light to function. But even in spite of filming in midday, with four 4,000 stage lamps aimed at the car, the image still ended up looking dark. But this was the least of the crew's worries, as they ended up crushing two cars, only for the camera to have jammed both times, with the film stock rendered unusable. Argento, though, was insistent on having the shot, however, and it was discovered that the colour film stock they were using was too thick for the camera to handle. So using a thinner stock allowed them to finally get the spectacle on film, but it did leave a vestigial line over the footage that unfortunately couldn't be removed. If anything, however, I personally didn't notice this, though, until I gave it a rewatch. Other issues were with individuals behind the camera. So, for example, actor Michael York was originally signed on for the film's main role, but he had to cancel two weeks before shooting commenced due to commitments on the film's Zeppelin. With such a quick turnaround needed, they were lucky that Michael Brandon was suggested by Paramount and accepted quite rather quickly. The band Deep Purple, they were also contracted and signed on to do the film's soundtrack, and they started recording the introductory song that's played over the credits. Unfortunately, the editor from Argento's last two films, Franco Fraticelli, had a disagreement with the director and walked from the project. This wasn't inherently troublesome, as he was replaced by French chap Francois Bono, but the result of this meant that no other film crew could be foreign. In order for the film to retain Italian credit, the composer would also have to be Italian, so Deep Purple unfortunately had to be dropped. Rehiring Onio Morricone, Argento insisted on having a similar sounding song composed for the opening of the film in the style of Deep Purple, but Morricone wholeheartedly disagreed. Argento was quite vociferous, however, and he ultimately got his way, but it strained the pair's relationship to breaking point, and it resulted in Morricone refusing to work with Argento again. This continued for roughly 20 years until they finally made up, so it was a particularly virulent disagreement. Way more stylistic in its death sequences, like the death of Morosi, or Dahlia's head repeatedly hitting the stairs, the giallo mystery is also rather well kept especially due to the bizarre nature of the only clue, being an image from a dead woman's eyeball. The overall sense of the film, however, is that nothing is what it initially appears to be. Roberto was seemingly at the beginning rather a decent fellow in a happy marriage, only to be revealed as not only a bit of a hothead, but he certainly loses gold stars for being a cheater too. Conversely, Nina seems like a rational lady with a care for her husband's safety and the security of their home only to be the very perpetrator of the crimes with an unflinching viciousness and a desire for killing. The reason for the killings is also themed in the same way. She's clearly a girl, but she was raised as a boy. She was expected to fight back, but she cried like a little girl. She was branded crazy, even though she was simply abused. Even her revenge is triggered by a doppelganger rather than her father himself. The Professor and God look nothing like their namesakes, despite actually proving themselves to be quite helpful later on. And in Godfrey's case, he becomes both a metaphorical and a literal deus ex machina, making him sort of omnipotent like his namesake is. Erosio is flamboyantly homosexual, and Roberto assumes that he will cry bloody murder like a fairy in the face of danger, or simply fail in the investigation because of his admittedly appalling record. 
But despite this, Erosio is efficient, intelligent, and manages to solve the case perfectly before dying, and is interestingly the polar opposite of Nina. He's a man who has expressively feminine features and is quite open compared to a woman who's raised to be masculine who hides her intentions beneath a mask. Even in his final moments, the duality is present with subway escalators flowing in two different directions and the killer himself going into a unisex bathroom. Morosi appears to be a man caught in the middle of a brutal accident and ends up dead, only for this actually to be a sham set up by Nina. Even Darley's admission that she and Nina are incredibly close, but she feels no guilt whatsoever about having an affair with her man, it replicates this dual nature of things in the film. Some of the locations too have this duality. The streets of Italy at the beginning look rather dark, dingy and dangerous, but there's people laughing and throwing confetti all over Roberto. The theatre where Morosi meets his fake demise also looks quite clean and grandiose from the exterior, but it's a total mess on the inside. And in one of the more bizarre locations, God, Roberto and the Professor meet at a funeral home, only for it to be a very jovial exhibition of funerary implements, presented almost like it's Comic-Con with sales and tasters being offered... No more is this evasive dual-natured impression theme, though, more illustrated than in the clue that unravels the whole mystery. Nina's pendant, which is a fly encased in resin. Not only is the clue the result of the pendant swinging and creating four distinctive illusions of the same thing, the notion of a fly is that it is quite quick, it's irritating, and it's out of control. You swat constantly at them, they always escape, and they breed extremely quickly, spiralling rapidly out of anyone's control. Very similar to the way that Nina's homicidal urges that have been brought on by her stepfather's abuse. The resin is a natural suppressant, stopping the fly's flightiness and preserving it in a controlled environment. Apart from the two opposing themes, the resin is also symbolically like the mental institution that Nina's father sent her to to control what he perceived to be her homicidal tendencies. Out of the early Argento stuff, to me this had much more stylistic flourishes and symbolisms that would become way more evident in his later work. There's even Amelia's death, which is clearly inspirational towards Sergio Martino's The Strange Vice of Mrs Ward. And while I do like my Gialli with a bit more gore-wise, the dark palette of the film and the panache with which the deaths are executed, no pun intended, it does make the film very enjoyable. Actor Michael Brandon I actually recognised from British shows I've watched, like The Catherine Tate Show and Jonathan Creek, but he's also been in a whole host of things like Captain America, and he's narrated a hell of a lot of Thomas the Tank Engine as well. Mimsy Farmer, who played the psychotic Nina, she later appeared in The Perfume of the Lady in Black, uh, Fulci's The Black Cat, and Ruggiero Diodato's Body Count, but in recent years she's flexed her sculpting muscles and has worked actually as a sculptor on various high-profile films like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, The Golden Compass, Wrath of the Titans, Guardians of the Galaxy and even the 2017 version of Beauty and the Beast. If Erosio looked familiar, it may be because it was Jean-Pierre Marial, the same man who played the pentacle-shaped murder victim Jacques Saunier that kicks off the start of 2006's Da Vinci Code. Bud Spencer, who played Godfrey, was a rather well-known in-demand Italian actor at the time for his role in Spaghetti Westerns, and he did the role on Four Flies as a favour to Argento, stipulating that he just not be used in any promotions for the film. Callisto Callisti, who played the co-conspirator Morosi, he appeared in Lenzi's Orgasmo, 
while Marisa Fabri, who played Amelia, would later star in Mario Bava's lost film Rabid Dogs. Arresti Leonello, who played the Professor, he cropped up in the Giallo movie The Case of the Bloody Iris, and we've also seen Gildo DiMarco before too, who played the Postman. He'd been in uh, Bird with the Crystal Plumage as the informant. In the scenes where the killer is actually taking pictures of Roberto in the theatre, she's actually played by none other than Luigi Cozzi himself. And in terms of the crew, Argento again, it needs no introduction. Just as producer Salvatore Argento, uh, composer Onio Morricone, special effects guy Carlo Rombaldi, or assistant director Roberto Parianti need none either. But there are some unique crew members, of course, like co-writer Luigi Cozzi, who'd scored a video nasty of his own, the fun alien knockoff Contamination. He'd also done the very fun sci-fi movie Star Crash that starred Carolyn Monroe. He'd done an Italian version of Hercules starring the Hulk man Lou Ferrigno. And he also did a version of The Black Cat in 1989. Today, he actually heads up the horror memorabilia shop in Rome, Profondo Rosso, somewhere that I still haven't been to and I really need to visit in my life. I'd love to meet the guy. The cinematography was done by Franco Di Giacomo, who also did Who Saw Her Die, a Hitchhike, and Amityville 2, The Possession. Carlo Rambaldi, obviously the famous special effects guy who did E.T., he was assisted by Dino Galliano on the special effects, who'd later work on The Violent Professionals, uh, Red Knights of the Gestapo, Manahar, Isle of the Mutations, Panic, Wild Beasts, uh, David Lynch's Dune, The Phantom of Death, and even The Last Temptation of Christ. Francois Bono, who replaced Fraticelli as editor, had worked on 1969's Z before taking on the Argento film. He'd also later work on 1976's The Tenant, and also Michael Cimino's action picture Year of the Dragon, which starred Mickey Rourke. Now, it was released in December of 1971 in Italy, uh, during the Christmas period, and it garnered quite significant success. It was also released in the US by Paramount, and it was also released with cuts for an X certificate in the UK in 1973. But quite significantly for Argento's work, the film then pretty much disappeared from further release for a very long time, with only the exception of a very low-key French VHS. The film was unavailable during the nasty scare, so of course, even if it was obscene, it simply wasn't seen enough to be noticed. In fact, the film would not be available in the UK until Shameless Films released a remastered fan edition on DVD in 2011, a whole 38 years after its debut at the UK cinemas and 40 years after the film was released in Italy. It also had a Blu-ray release the next year from the same people. And that's it for this week, peeps. 
it is good to be back after a little break, and we're not going to be taking any rest soon as we plunge straight into next week. Now, as always, if you do like what we do on the show, do get in touch. I love talking about this area of film. So we're in Nasty Pasty Pod on Twitter, or just search Nasty Pasty on Facebook, you'll find us. But you can also email in some feedback on the films that we're covering, either written or recorded, to nastypastypodcast at gmail.com, and we'll feature you on the end of the episode. Tune in to us next week for another round of Nastyish Delights. We're actually covering rape and revenge movies next week, but ones that only have some elements rather than following the rigid template. So in essence, next week is pseudo-rape and revenge week. So the films that we're covering are Charles Kaufman's Mother's Day and Sam Peckinpah's Straw Dogs. But until next time, though, look after yourself and F. Haristo for listening. Goodbye!